One third of the world's population lives near a coast. Looking specifically at low elevation areas most vulnerable to rising seas, that means close to 700 million people are at risk. To grasp what this means exactly for U.S. coastal cities and areas, there is an interactive map from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency that visualizes the impact of rising water in places such as Miami, New York, San Juan, or the Florida Keys, which in a five-foot rise scenario will completely vanish into the ocean. Miami already spending millions of dollars on saltwater sea pumps will eventually become the northernmost key, much like nearby Biscayne. All this is happening now. Todd Miller, in his book, Storming the Wall. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. Alarmist, you might say? But keep in mind that the sea level in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia has risen 18 inches since the beginning of the 20th century, according to Miller. At the same time, flooding is just one of the multiple climate disasters projected to dislocate people around the world. Todd Miller is my guest this morning, and we're talking about his book, Storming the Wall, and the interface between climate change, human migration, and homeland security. Todd, welcome to Delmarva today. It's, it's great to be here, Harold. Thank you. Well, Todd, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you. And I, and I did want to say uh, your book is really excellent and contains just uh, an enormous amount of information, which I greatly appreciate. But let me ask you to tell us about your book and what climate change has to do with human migration and in particular with homeland security. Sure. Um, so the that's exactly what what the book is. It's it's meant to connect the dots between climate change, um, and and to look at climate change in the book. I actually traveled to many places around the world, including the Philippines, including Paris, France during during the climate summit including Guatemala and Honduras and Southern Mexico, including the US-Mexico borderlands where I live, um, to, to attempt to, to um, connect those dots. And, and really those dots are, you know, the projections are that those dots are going to be connected, but, uh, but it's not only the future. Like one of the, one of the biggest things I learned in my travels was was that uh, when you think of climate change, it's like I, you just mentioned in the, in the introduction, 
it's happening right right now, right? And it's it's happening before our eyes. And that that means the sea level rise. That means drought sort of drought situations like you're seeing in places like Guatemala and Honduras. That means um, you know super storms and hurricanes unlike we've ever seen before. That uh, just to think about how it connects with homeland security that we're also seeing in Central America. That we take those two uh, category four hurricanes that hit the coast of Nicaragua and Honduras in November of last year. And people coming up from Honduras right now in this moment are, are saying, you know, this happened now, what is it? Uh, this has happened now six months ago, but, but people are still displaced by this. Uh, there's testimonies of people who have been living underneath bridges, families, uh, communities, um, and they are, uh, some of them are leaving Honduras and going north and coming to the United States. And one of the things that happens if you don't have papers, which most people do not in these situations, is that it's not a, you don't get the welcome, you know, the, 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 the gates aren't open. There's not a welcome a band to play a song for you. You, what you, you end up seeing is borders and the borders uh, when you arrive to the U.S. southern border, but also they begin even further further to the south. So, uh, so it's 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 a displacement that we're seeing not only in Honduras, not only in Guatemala, but all around the world. Um, that is, moment according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, displacing um, approximately 22.5 million people per year. Um, a, a displacement that is projected by different organizations, different forecasters to, to be between maybe uh, 100 million and a billion by 2050. Obviously, there's a big debate there and nobody's in it's the future, so you, you're, things could change. But uh, that, that wide range was told to me by by a UN uh, researcher who's doing empirical studies, like looking at connecting climate change to displacement, she said, you know, there's a there there is a wide range raising debate, but but if things stay the same, what we will see will be staggering and unlike anything we've ever seen before in history. And so that's those are the things, those are the the the, the dynamics that are coming to a head already and seem to be that they will be coming to a head more and more as we advance into the 21st century. Well, it seems as though um, with this climate change, um, we either have too much water or not enough water um, because part of the displacement is, is also drought uh, and people just can't grow food anymore is what I understand and, and you in a lot of places, you can't grow food, you can't eat, you leave, and you go someplace um, where you can. So uh, we know that this is happening in um, uh, Central America and, and Guatemala and Honduras and, and, and the Philippines, as you say in your book. Um, the wa high water uh, in, uh, in the Philippines. What other places, um, Todd, are, are experiencing 
uh, these kinds of severe uh, conditions that are driving people to, uh, to leave their homeland. I think this is everywhere. And, and uh, I mean, when you look at climate change, it doesn't discriminate itself, right? Like, well, at the same hand, it, it affects, as studies have shown, it affects poor places in the world, like the, uh, the 48, 48 poorest countries in the world are, are people die because of climate disasters at a, five, a rate five times higher than the wealthier nations in the world. So the kind of impacts that it has, it, you know, it, it depends on the infrastructure of a place, but the, it's not discriminatory in any other sense. So it's hitting, like where I live in Arizona, um, there's, we are in a drought right now. Uh, this drought, there's more droughts in, on the docket. Um, the place, there's places that it looks so, when I go to the desert right now, the desert in Arizona, it's a Sonoran desert. It's really a rather green or lush desert. But right now it's, it's very, it's more parched than normal. We didn't get any rain last year. You know, so, so it's a fact like where, right where I live. Uh, and, and in this sense, I think of my children, right? I have a five-year-old, a two-year-old and, and I'm like, uh, will they be able to live here? Is, you know, the displacement um, is like, when you look at it and a lot of the things I look at in Storming the Wall is outside of US borders, but very well. And again, like you mentioned with the sea level rise, it can happen very, you know, what's gonna happen to the state of Florida? What's going to happen to, you know, the Eastern seaboard? What's going to happen to the Pacific coast? You know, those sorts of things uh, will places become unlivable where people have to move. And that's the same dynamic, right? As, as, uh, as somebody in Honduras who, who can no longer, you know, have a harvest because the rains didn't come, uh, then, you know, you have a sort of displacement within the country as well. So these, it's, it just, it, it doesn't matter where you are, it's going to have an impact. It just matters. So a, a lot of things matter on what, how you are able to withstand it. So we're looking at not only um, uh, global um, uh, migration of, uh, of peoples, but um, we can also expect, I would assume, my uh, internal migration, domestic migrations of people. And, and you recount in your book that we did experience that in the 30s and um, and that was fascinating fascinating to read uh, your uh, statistical uh, evidence but um, that does uh, bring me to the question of um, with all of the pressure on the borders what what do our borders look like today now we're hearing on the news uh, quite a bit about the border and the pressure and and the Trump policies relative to the to the border. Uh, but um, how how would you describe our borders today? I think you have to look at our border um, and our borders, but and that's really key, the, plural, the plurality is key, but I'll keep it to the southern border for our- The our poor country. Canadians, we, 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 <laughs> we don't often think too much about uh, that border up there, do we? No, but uh, I'll mention a couple of things about that border and, and maybe we should. <laughs> what? I, think um, so. I think so. <laughs> um, but for, 
to start, let me just uh, let me just uh, mention the southern border. And the southern border, I really, it's really difficult for me. You know, I've been doing this sort of reporting on the border for over a decade, fifteen years, um, and uh, I mean, witnessing a lot of trends and dynamics, and and uh, um, really the. I, it's it's hard for me to look at the border and not think of of how the border is designed historically. Uh, it's it's designed under a strategy, and this is a 1994 strategy called prevention through deterrence. Believe it or not, that is still the same strategy on the border today. And prevention through deterrence, what what the what the perp, what the strategy is, and you can look at the 1994 Border Patrol Memorandum that they sent explaining it, but I'll just explain it. Um, the idea is to, it was to blockade uh, urban cities along the border. And urban cities are were the, were the traditional places where people would cross because they're safer, there's more infrastructure. And so the idea was that you, you, you concentrate agents, border patrol agents, armed border patrol agents, you build up walls, so the first kind of walls that we see on the U.S.-Mexico border, um, I guess you can go back before 1994, but 1994 was a big year for wall building, especially in places like Nogales and San Diego and El Paso. And then reinforced by technology. And the technology armed personnel and walls were are what they call a border wall system. That border wall system in cities is meant to blockade those cities. And then people would then who are crossing would be then forced to circumvent those areas and go into like the desert south of where I live here in Arizona, which is dangerous, desolate, and and it turns out to be deadly. And if you look at if you look at the Border Patrol Memorandum in 1994, it says the desert or going around these areas would be a mortal danger, quote unquote. Um, that mortal, so that's the design of, of the border enforcement apparatus. So at the time, there's a $1.5 billion budget for border and immigration enforcement through the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And that budget has grown and grown and grown every single year since then. And these, and if you want to look it up, there's like Operation, Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Safeguard, Operation Hold the Line. Those are those 1990s operations. But then you see by the end of the, the 1990s, there's a $4.2 billion budget. At, at the beginning of the 9-11, and 9-11 is another huge kind of milestone as far as looking at the border. 9-11 happens, and then Department of Homeland Security is created, Customs and Border Protection is created, Immigration and Customs Enforcement is created, and budgets just skyrocket. Really, you look at the George W. Bush administration and and when it began, it had a $4.5 billion budget. By the time it ended, there was a $15 billion budget for border immigration enforcement. And that goes on and on and on. So by the time Donald Trump takes office, $20 billion is, is, is CBP and ICE. And a very built up border. There's some, nearly uh, around 650 miles of walls and barriers already that existed. There's 21, 20,000, 20 to 21,000 border patrol agents. That went up from 4,000 in 1994. So that's a quintuple. That's five times more. Um, and you have all kinds of an array of technologies with the same system in place. So people coming up um, since those the 1990s have been circumventing those areas and going into the desert. Um, one of the differences that with the Donald Trump administration 
that is, um, and you could see this coming before, was an influx of, of asylum seekers. Um, and really, when, you, when I look at the Trumpian policies those four years, one of the biggest things that stands out is just this, you know, this, I, I don't know what, what other way to put it, but a war on asylum seekers and, you know, cutting off, like before there was ways to enter the country and, and a lot of people ended up in detention, but then putting like the remain in Mexico program, which basically people have to stay on the other side and in, in Mexican border cities, usually um, this family separation, like separating kids from their from their mothers and fathers right at right on the border that you know those sorts of policies that seem to push that cruelty a cruelty to to an extreme that that we hadn't seen before however one of the points that i do want to make is that that could not have happened without the buildup there was also cruelty before then a lot of it there was family separate not the same in the same way but there was family separation. It's a part of how the border apparatus is designed so that it separates families. And that brings us to now. And now, and, and um, now what, you have a very interesting situation because it's right in the first hundred, I think we just surpassed hundred days of the Biden administration. Um, you, you and President Biden came out of the gate with a lot of executive orders, a lot of orders talking about um, reversing some of the, the policies of Donald Trump over the, over the previous four years. And some of those have been, he, it seems like there's a sort of working on some of them and some of them have stalled out um, a little bit. Um, but one thing that hasn't been reckoned with is this overarching budget increasing overall strategy of prevention through deterrence, which is still the case. So one example I'll give you, um, in the Biden, Joe Biden said, I will not build one more foot of wall. And so that's an incredible statement. And it was definitely directed to Donald Trump, right? You are building a wall. I am not going to do this. But if you read what he says next, is that I will divert that money. And then my hope would be like maybe divert it to something else. I'll divert that money to technology. So then if you think back to the 1994 prevention to deterrence, the three, the border wall system, technology is a part of that. So the, the idea of technology reinforcing the, the border wall, reinforcing the agents is a part of the same system. So, so, that's, so we have that sort of situation on the border right now. Now, when one other thing with, with, with Biden shifting some of the Trump policies, shifting some of the remain in Mexico, like eliminating it in some places, keeping it in others still, it's under review. But that means that there's more people crossing the border. Um, that means that then, then, then you have a narrative and that grabs from the other side of the aisle, right? The Republican side of the aisle, that's like border crisis, border crisis, border crisis. And, it, and it's uh, in this situation, it's a disingenuous narrative because, um, because it's, 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 a, it's a kind of moment that we're in for one, and also you have a, the traditional, it's March, April, May, even February are traditional times when people cross. And as I was, we were just mentioning with climate change, there's a displacement crisis of the magnitude that nobody really seems to realize going on in places like Guatemala and Honduras. And so that part of it really needs to be reckoned with. 
And, um, and so there's a number of different factors um, that, that come into play. But, uh, but one, one last point, the, the, border, the idea of a border crisis, the border is designed to be in, a, in really a perpetual crisis for those across. And so that's going to maintain, it's gonna keep in the same dynamic until those deeper roots are, are, are looked at and, and uh, um, shifted in a significant way. So is this what you mean in your book, um, Todd, when you talk about the militarization of the border? One, one, one sense I got, um, is that because of the technology, we don't need the walls anymore, or we don't need as much wall because the walls are being replaced with these surveillance, uh, a highly sophisticated surveillance um, methods. But uh, to go a step further, what does militarization mean in this respect? So the military, I mean, you can look at the technologies, for example, uh, a lot of the technologies were first used in military operations abroad. Take the Predator B drone. There's a fleet of drones that the, that CB Customs and Border Protection has. And the Predator Bs were, um, were the drones used in Afghan, are the drones used in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they're, and there they're weaponized. Here, they're not. But then, there's another, there's a radar system that was used in Afghanistan called manhunting radar system called a Vader system like Darth Vader. Um, Vader, uh, and this has been imported again, exported and imported back to the border. And that was used in Afghanistan to, to as, as Northrop Grumman, the company that, that developed it, that to go out to look for uh, roadside bombers. And now it's the radar used on the in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and deserts, looking for people crossing. And those those are some examples. And, and there's there's when you talk to Border Patrol, uh, Border Patrol will refer to themselves as a paramilitary unit. They're not quite the police. They're not quite the military. They're somewhere kind of in a middle ground. Um, there's a uh, Oh, there's there's a really um, great book that I sh I, sh I would be remiss not to mention by um, Timothy Dunn, who's a sociologist at Salisbury um, uh, University, and he uh, um, it's called the Militarization of the U.S.-Mexico Border from 1978 to 1992. So he goes back deep, really deep, to look at how the kind of military apparatus was taking over, you know the the technologies, but also in terms of how um, the Pentagon was was instrumental in developing border strategy in terms of uh, the low intensity doctrine. So it's a low intensity doctrine um, and, and Dunn goes really deeply, it's a, such a good book um, into how that is. And, and, uh, and you can see how that, that sort of um, idea of, um, of, uh, of this low intensity doctrine goes into the prevention through deterrence strategy. And it's, it, it relies on psychological operations for one and in, in, war, in war scenarios. And it very much prevention through deterrence is about the deterrence aspect of the psychological operation in a lot of ways. So there's many different facets you can look at. I mean, from 
from the border armed border patrol, from the technologies that are being used to the kind of Pentagon participation, even even the Department of Defense's uh, um, contribution to the border. And, um, and the latest, of course, is during the Trump years and the DOD giving money for the border wall. And you know who, like a lot of times, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, at least in the first border wall construction, they were the ones building it. Um, so you can see the kind of intersection between those two, the Homeland Security Department and, and the military. Todd, what do you anticipate for um, uh, 2100? You have a chapter in your book that says, um, uh, in, in essence, what the borders are going to be like in 2100. And that uh, that uh, works off of a significant increase in climate change and and the crises that they will uh, that that will uh, will create. Uh, at at this point, what do you see for the borders of um, of twenty one hundred? And uh, is it just going to be in terms of militarization and deterrence, more of the same, or or do you see the possibility of something different? Oh, I have, I have, to, I have. You know, it's, it's almost imperative to see see the possibility of something different. Um, but first, uh, the way that things are going now, you know, the trajectory, like I were just explaining, the last twenty five years, you see budgets going up and up and up. You know, if I had to make an educated guess, and based on the history of what's been happening it would seem that we're on this trajectory of um, border militarization that, uh, that there seems to be more of an emphasis, as you just mentioned, on technology over, over the walls. However, there's, a, there's a, a strong, like the Trump administration did actually replace or build 400 miles of walls, right? So there's still, uh, there's still that, that element to it. And, um, if you look at those, like in some of the assessments I look at in Storming the Wall, there's some of them are just so dire. And these are assessments coming from US government, coming from the Pentagon often, coming from uh, security people who are looking at scenarios of climate change and, and um, like what if there's a five degree temperature rise instead of a two degree temperature rise, for example, um, to, and that's centigrade, um, what would that look like? And that's within the realm of possibility. What happens when, when you know, not only Florida becomes, you know, have, you know, half the land mass in the state goes away, but also different places around the world, like in the Philippines, when I was in the, where I was in the Philippines, um, like Manila might not exist in 2100, right? The capital of the Philippines or other uh, places that are close to coast, Bangladesh is in trouble, and um, and what is but what has happened? If you go to the Bangladeshi Indian border, India has built a border wall, a, a pretty big one, um, and with a with a huge border, what they call the border security force, that's gigantic border patrol. Um, those sorts of scenarios are becoming more and more common everywhere, and um, and that is the dynamic, and. And I, and I say that um, when you, it seems like that won't 
it seems to me that that cannot possibly stay true. There's just too much going on. It's, it's, it's unsustainable. And if, if it, it seems like we're at a place where, you know, if you, right now, you know, we, like you've had, you've had countries go to the climate summits for 25 years and still in 2019, not 2020 because the pandemic, I think brought emissions level, emission levels down a little bit. But in 2019, the emissions are higher than ever before. So those sorts of like indicators that we're still going to be on this, 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 these projections for, we have these projection for, for a climate crisis that's even more dire than, than we have right now are pretty significant unless some pretty big changes are made. And, um, but it seems to me that the more of those sorts of things happen, the more imperative and urgent that those changes will need that that will need to happen, and 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 one of those things when you look at the displacement, when you look at the mass amounts of people that are predicted to be displaced if this continues on the same trajectory, we are going to have to, and um, by force, think of uh, how to organize a world in which this reality of, of where people are are going to be on the move, unlike we've ever seen before. And we can continue this route of building up borders and, and militarizing borders um, that kind of keeps keeps stability in the unsustainable, if you can get what I'm saying. You know, it's it's unsustainable situation. And it seems quite imperative that we're gonna have to move into thinking of things in another way. Well, Todd, thank you very much for joining me uh, today. And thanks to all of you for listening. This is Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>